Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, then we are back. We are covering sections 18 and 19 today, so a lot of them today. <laughs> but these are... These are good. These are really good. So these comprise uh, section 18 was given to Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer in June of 1829. And then we have section 19, which is given to Martin Harris in March of 1830. So a good chunk of time between those two revelations. And we're definitely going to see a tone difference. And we'll definitely talk about that. We were talking about that just here a little bit earlier about the tone difference between sections 18 and sections 19. You can tell they're to two different people. And I think it's going to be fun to kind of hypothesize why those tone changes happen. But in sections 18, this we have some pretty famous, well-used, I don't know, scripture masteries. Yeah, scripture mastery. There we go. It's you know, some very popular scriptures. And if you, if it's so be that you should labor all your day in crying repentance into this people. You know, yeah, someone made a song out of this. Yeah, the old 90s song. Yeah. Remember that song? <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to sing it for, uh, for, for benefit including my own but uh these are these are fantastic because i love it was really the biggest thing i think that stood out to me this week was really seeing the tone differences because in in section 18 to oliver and david we have this uh, this hope this hope that's coming about and it's like they're being prepared for something they're really getting the the charge and the energy that, that's getting ready to to do this and david whitmer just kind of come into the scene they're still trying to translate the Book of Mormon and get that whole thing taken care of. Joseph and Oliver were down in Harmony and they, they couldn't get uh, some respite down there. And, and so they came up to David Whitmer and his uh, his parents' farm. So they were there at the Whitmer farm trying to get this all finished up so they can get the Book of Mormon published. But there in the background is always Martin Harris. And by this time, Martin Harris is kind of come in there. He's there around Joseph and Emma a lot. I think he's living with them, right? Yeah, there's a point in here where he does live with them. I'd have to look up the exact dates, but that's the context of section 19. Yeah. So, so Martin Harris is living with them. He's kind of estranged from his wife. And then we, man, we get this really kind of dark turn in section 19 where Jesus just doesn't seem to be all too happy. And I'm like, is Jesus not too happy? Or is this the false self that's not too happy? Is this Joseph that's still really upset with Martin like a year later? Like, what's going on here? So I look forward to talking about that. But just to get things started in section 18, I love that it starts off about, because he always identifies who he's talking to. Verse one, and now behold, because of the thing which you, my servant, Oliver Cowdery, have desired to know of me, I give unto you these words. And I love that, you know, last week we talked about questions because we were covering some of these template sections, right? You know, we call them template revelations where it just seems to be that 
you come along, you want a revelation, and God has like copy A revelation. He's like, all right, uh, let's choose this one. Mail merge the name in there. <laughs> That's right. You know, just like, you know, just kind of like pencil the name in there and hey, you can have that one. But when we really push ourselves into these, we start to realize just how personal they really were because of the questions they were asking. And so we saw that depending on the questions you were asking, the responses varied. And you can imagine God coming down and being like, no, 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 no. That's not the question you need to ask, right? You need to ask this question so I give you this answer. Because I I think in a lot of ways, that's how I deal with my kids a lot. It's like they come up to me with one kind of question. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not the right, uh, that's not the right problem (laughs) to have. You need to be worrying about this problem over here. This is, this is the real thing that you need to learn about. And, and so I never really give them what they come to me with. And, and that's one of the things I've had to learn as a father is to be able to, you know, I think even Jesus talks about this. He's like, will your children coming to you asking for bread, give them a serpent. And I'm like, I think, well, not a serpent, but like maybe like a pizza, you know, it, it's just like something <laughs> different, right? They want one thing. I'm like, that's not what you want. You want this over here. Yeah. No, I see that. That's an interesting point to make that we often don't like the questions that our kids ask us and try to get them to ask us different questions. I actually do that a lot, and uh, maybe I need to change the way that I'm doing that. That's that's a really good point, something for me to think about. Yeah, I noticed I was doing that as well. I'm like, why do I do that? I never really came up with a good reason why I do that. And I'm like, I got to not do that anymore. So <laughs> it's something with those fundamental shifts I've had. But God really does give to us the things that we ask for. And a lot of the time, it's, you know, careful what you wish for, because, you, you know, you just may get it. And... I see that happening here all the time with these revelations. And, you know, when we talked last week, it was one of those things like, why why are they going to Joseph for a revelation? Why aren't they just going straight to God? I mean, that just seems like God 101, right? If I went to like a, a class on God, it's like, you know, the first class is like, know how to talk to God, prayer. <laughs> you know, it just seems like one of those first things that you learn. But even with Joseph Smith, we knew that when he was sitting down there with James 1 and he's going over James 1 and He's he's pouring over that. He says, I had this idea to pray, something that I'd never before considered to do out loud. And you're like, what? what? You know, I, I, I've heard that it's like Joseph Smith. Have you not heard your own story? I've heard your story since you, I was three years <laughs> old, right? I've been taught to pray since I was three. But here we see Joseph and, and these people who really don't have that kind of context in their daily life to, in doing these kinds of things and getting that kind of direct revelation, which makes it fascinating that God really does come down and he literally says, like in section 14 in verse 5, listen, if you ask me and if you knock, just come talk to me and I'll give it to you. And and so what seems to us is like really simple doctrine for these people. It's it's like the heavens are opening up for them so that they can access God directly. I know this is very much part of the Second Great Awakening and one of those things that really happened with the Second Great Awakening. Before then, you know, you really had to go through your clergy, through your church, through your leaders, th- through the, the doctrinal channels to be able to access God. But part of the Second Great Awakening definitely was, no, you can go right to God yourself and figure it out for yourself. So it's very much in flavor of this whole thing. But as he's talking with Oliver... He says, and, and if you know that they are true, well, back up, I'll read verse two. Behold, I have manifested unto you by my spirit in many instances that the things which you have written are true. You know, speaking of him being the scribe, wherefore you know that they are true. And if you know that they are true, behold, I give unto you a commandment that you rely upon the things which are written. For in them are the things written concerning the foundation of my church, my gospel, and my rock. 
And I love these things. You know, the Book of Mormon is, when we really think about the Book of Mormon message, we don't really tend to walk away there thinking that we got the complete foundations of the church, the gospel, and the rock, right? You know, if I think of rock, I think of Helaman 5.12. But if I think of church, I might think of Jesus coming down and, you know, they already had a church. Alma started a church. But is the whole foundation of his gospel in there, except for like when Jesus comes and he gives it to him? So these are things, that, at least when I was going over this, that in the things that Oliver's writing down here from the Book of Mormon are the foundation of my church, my gospel, and my rock. There's a lot of things that aren't in the Book of Mormon. Temples aren't mentioned in the Book of Mormon. That whole priesthood authority is not overly emphasized. It is. You can, talk, you can go through, you can find a few things in there, but it's not overly emphasized. And so there's just, there's a lot of interesting things in this verse four for me, where the foundation of my church, my gospel, my rock are in these things that Oliver is writing. And I'm like, hmm, maybe I need to keep that in mind the next time I read the Book of Mormon. Yeah, I mean, gospel here and foundation. So first of all, foundation, right? That's not the whole building, right? That's the foundation. It's the most important part of the building. You know, nothing can be built further until you have a solid foundation. And so you have the most basic doctrines. And then gospel, you know, gospel, we use it in a general sense. When we say the gospel, a lot of times we mean the church and they're not the same thing. When we talk about sharing the gospel, we often are implied, we really, what we really mean to say is share the church. And um, what we really need to do is just share the gospel. <laughs> and sometimes that might include sharing the church if that's what somebody needs. But more importantly, we need to make sure we're just sharing the gospel. By the gospel, we are talking about some things that are very specific. Christ tells us specifically what his gospel is. And his gospel isn't everything that's in the gospel doctrine manual, right? It's not that whole thing. That may be some more parts of the building and, and doctrine and certain revelation that's been received, but uh, Christ's gospel is is pretty basic and simple. It's, you know, it's outlined in the Sermon on the Mount. He gives it to the Nephites in just a couple of verses and talks about why he came and what he came to do and to show the people who God was and and that we follow him and, and, and go his way. And that's the gospel, right? It's a very basic thing and very straightforward. And then it's all the other it's all the other stuff that is is helpful and important for organization and so forth, but it's not the foundation, right? Yeah, I like that a lot. You know, the gospel, you know, the good news. We all know that the gospel means the good news of God. And I, I don't know if a lot of the times it's ever really felt that way. It feels like rules, things that can eventually lead us to happiness. And that's one of the reasons why I love the Beatitudes so much, because they are literally written in a rhetorical style that is meant to be explicitly understood that blessed are. It's not blessed will be, it's blessed are. It's a descriptive, like, like this is the state of being for, for being in this. Blessed are they that mourn. And when I read blessed are they that mourn, that really gives this aspect of the gospel, like, wait, what? It's like the good news of Jesus Christ. Blessed are they that mourn. I'm like, that just doesn't make any sense. It's like, blessed are they that, that are you know, mourning? And the more I really push myself in and I've really tried to get into that, those narratives and that story of what's trying to be told, I've come up, I've just, I've experienced these wonderful aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Cause I think a lot of the times what we think is this good news is like exuberant happiness. 
exuberant like joy, like like we're just walking around with a smile on our face and a twinkle in our eye all day long. <laughs> and that's not the good news. And I've come to find out in my own life, you know, I've, I've shared a few times that I've had some very deep moments with God in my pain where I finally had these just brief glimpses where I experienced the love of God in my pain. And that was a completely different kind of experience. I can't even put words to it, and that's about as good as I can get to describing it. But those moments of actually experiencing that love of God in in trauma and in mourning is just a completely different kind of good news. And so I, I really do like this concept that, you know, you, what you brought up, Ben, about, uh, about the church. The gospel isn't the church. And, you know, this leads kind of to the conversation of conversion. Conversion to the gospel or conversion to Jesus Christ is not synonymous with conversion to the church. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the times we miss that. Because, you know, in the Book of Mormon, when we have Alma the Younger, he's preaching conversion to Jesus Christ. And then he's like, listen, now that we've been converted and we've had this change of heart, what have we against being baptized? And so it's like an afterthought. Baptism was supposed to seal this experience that they had and represent this experience that they had. And we've talked a lot about that back in the Book of Mormon podcast. But it's one of these moments of experiencing the gospel and the ordinance follows as a symbol of what we've experienced. And then after that, it's like, oh yeah, and now that we've had all these experiences, let's let's create a formal group together that we can all experience these things together. And we call this a church. Right. And I almost see in Third Nephi when Jesus comes down, because there's no evidence in the Book of Mormon that Jesus came down and instructed the formation of a church. Just up to the time he came. But us reading it back into the narrative, we, we tend to we tend to kind of read it in a particular way where like Jesus has a church and he established his church. And that's the way that we read it and that's the way the narrative writes. And that's perfectly fine that way. There's another question I wonder if if what Jesus was doing is he came down and he was like, hmm, I see what you guys have been doing. I see that you've been tapping into that aspect of your humanity, that thing that that I did. That the thing that I, I, my, my perfect archetypal humanity as well, you're tapping into that. And I see that you're starting to create the groups where you're coming together. That's right. This is good. Let me give you a name for this. This is the mm-hmm. church. And, and, and not only that, but this is the church of those who experience what is called Christ. Right. And it's almost more descriptive. He's giving a name, like a descriptive element to an, an experience that's already being had as opposed to giving a proscriptive rule that they have to like live into. It's nuanced, but it's a completely different way of looking at it. And I, I'm happy with it if Jesus came down, he's like, hey guys, this is my church. I've got 12 vacant seats. I'm going to pick you, 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 and you. You guys are in here. Bless them. Get them ordained. Have them go out to do this thing. I'm okay with that story too. I think there's room to be able to see it the other way as well. And so when we start to realize and to see the formation of the church here, these men, like in sections 18, and we're going to find out later on, they're having these experiences prior to the formation of the church. That's leading them into this this type of conversion, that they're becoming converted even before the church is established. And that's going to be what the Lord uses those experiences to really move things along.
You know, you were talking about the gospel being the good news and how, you know, how is it that it can be the good news when we talk about things like mourning and, and stuff like that. But in all of those cases, just like you were saying, it's that God is with us. The good news, right? Is that whatever circumstance that we're in, God can be with us. We can ask and receive. We talk about one of the names of Christ being Emmanuel, which means God with us. So I kind of just like that concept that that is one way to talk about what the gospel, the good news is, is that God is with us. Yeah. You know, a lot of the times we feel, at least I feel, and I don't want to project it onto anyone else, I feel where I start going through life alone, where it's just like, I've got to hack my way out of the wilderness. I've got to go through and do this. And it takes a lot of time to, when I get into that rut of just over and over again, that I'm the one who has to do these things. And I'm kind of plotting my, my own trail and, and kind of hacking it out of the wilderness as it were. It takes a while to, to recognize that. And then to choose to sit down, take a deep breaths, take a couple deep breaths. And then in that moment, just recognize that God is always already there with us. You know, we've talked about prayer and about praying for others and recognizing God's already there with them. And, you know, we forget that about ourselves, that God is always there with us. And for me, I've found a lot of value in taking a lot of deep breaths. That's why I talk about it so much. That's like my go-to. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I take a lot of deep breaths and then I just, I just listen for what's present. And sometimes nothing's there. And I'm like, okay, well, and, and I move forward though, even with that, that knowledge and the intentionality that God is there. And, and it really does change my day. You know, in verse 10 here, I think this is sometimes we don't really see the sense of significance in some of these verses when the Lord says, remember the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. They're coming off of some pretty fantastic religious foundations in America. Calvinism was really big. Whole predestination. Some people are saved. Mm -hmm. Some people are not saved. You don't know if you're saved. You just have to wait till you get to heaven. And so this whole time you're living your life and you don't even know if you're saved or not, but you just have to live your life as though you were saved. And then at the end, you may actually be going to hell for your whole life. And and so this is like the, a lot of the of America prior to the second great awakening was living in this kind of Calvinistic way of looking at it. So when you look at the worth of souls being great in the side that every soul has worth, every soul has a chance. Every soul is being, is being nurtured by God. Every soul has potential. God loves every soul in their context. This is revolutionary. And when he comes out, he says, for behold, the Lord, your redeemer suffered death in the flesh. Wherefore he suffered the pain of all men that all men might repent and come unto him. I know we're going to talk more about the, the atonement in section 19. I don't want to get too, too ahead of myself because we're going to have some fun things to say about that. About, uh, well, I, I don't want to say we have some fun things to say about the suffering of Jesus Christ, but there are some interesting things to say about the atonement. And if it so be that you should labor all your days in crying repentance unto this people, if, if you're spending all of your life trying to get people to see me differently, and only one person ever turns to see me differently. How great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of our Father. You know, when we start to look at repentance that way, Ben, I don't, I don't know about you, but that really does change a lot of things for me. When I read that, 
that really does redefine the whole meaning of that for me. That's what I was thinking about as I was reading through that. What One thing to just build upon a, the point you were making earlier about the church and the gospel, I think verse 5 really brings it out well. So, you know, I'm kind of rewinding here a bit, but it, it says, Wherefore, if you shall build up my church upon the foundation of my gospel and my rock, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. And I think just a, a different way of saying what we were talking about earlier about the church and the gospel is that the church is built on the gospel, not the gospel on the church, right? And so we just have to make sure we get that cart before the horse, well, horse before the cart <laughs> <laughs> type of thing, right? We we often go the other way, and uh, we often try to build the gospel on the church instead of the church on the gospel, and that's where I think that we can run into some issues. You know, talking uh, back about this, uh, bringing one soul unto him. This gets hashed over uh, a lot of times in in discussions and, and everything. But it says, The Lord, your Redeemer, suffered death in the flesh, wherefore he suffered the pain of all men, that all men might repent and come unto him. I, I like the might there. We often bring up this theme of the doctrine of perhaps, and I think this touches on that. Christ didn't, this sort of that predestined, concept where he's like, okay, I know we, we did the math and there's uh, statistically Jesus, there's going to be 3.4 billion people that will actually take advantage of the atonement. So when we get to the 3.4 billion suffering mark, then you know it'll be done and you won't have to suffer anymore because everybody else isn't going to take advantage of it anymore. So anyway, so that's going to be it. But that's that's not how it worked, right? How it worked is that he he actually is available to everyone. And I know, you know, we're going to talk about this concept a bit here of the different ideas of how the atonement works. I know when you kind of get into that, it, it, it can get a little bit, a uh, little sticky because in my opinion, the, how the atonement quote unquote works is, is so personal an individual that talking about these broad general theories of it um, really, really desecrates it a bit, in my opinion, because it doesn't allow us to see it as as personal as it's supposed to be. And that's why I like these scriptures here. Sometimes when we would go over these in seminary, uh, the point would come up, and and if it seemed appropriate, I would bring up the point that if one single individual, you know, we might point to one one person there and say if you were the only person that needed it Christ would have performed the atonement for you the whole thing just for you that point when somebody put it that way once to me that kind of brought it home a little more it wasn't this mathematical statistical got a cover all the sins of everybody types of thing. It was a personal individual. He's concerned about you and your salvation. And it's not some like, again, this collective type of justice satisf uh, satisfying thing. Yeah, that's a really good point. When you come down here to verse 21, it says, take upon you the name of Christ and speak the truth in soberness. What does it mean? We've talked a lot about taking upon ourselves the name of Christ, but it's important for us to know what Christ is. 
And we've said it a bunch where it's always great to say we follow Jesus until we see that he's walking towards Calvary. You know, that's that's about the time <laughs> where I'm like, <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> I don't I don't want to walk towards Calvary. But then Jacob 1.8 comes out that we have to take up our cross and follow him and follow him to Calvary and to, to bear the shame of the world. To be able to suffer and sacrifice and be long-suffering for our fellow man in finite and temporal ways and that he was for us in infinite and eternal ways. And that's what this, you know, this taking upon ourselves that name that when we walk down the street, we embody everything that Christ did and everything that Christ is. And I love in verse 20, one verse before that, contend against no church, save it be the church of the devil. And that's one thing I really do value and love about the culture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, especially when people join the church and they, they join it from an active church. It is, you know, occasionally you'll see someone get up there where they turn around and they start talking about their old church and about why they're glad they're in the new church. And they kind of say a few like things about their old church, you know, but by and large, I would say 95 to 99% of the time that I've seen those that are converted to the gospel, when you know, if they get out to bear their testimony for the first time, there's always a rejoicing of something that they're growing into. It's it's always the, you know the missionary's family, or I knew someone here, or however they were introduced into the church, and gratitude for where they came from. You know, yeah, and there was there, there's a gratitude for where they came from, and that I, that for me is is highly indicative of the way that Christ works, and that all of our lives should be that wherever we wherever we're going and wherever we're coming from, that we move in and we find gratitude for where we've been and joy in where we're moving into. And that's always impressed me so much, just that whole way that the culture has been built around that principle. We don't, as a culture, disparage other churches over the pulpit. We don't get up there and preach sermons about what other faiths believe and about how they preach this doctrine wrong and how they do this wrong. We don't do that. That, should, that would be so abnormal in our community. And if a teacher ever tried to do that, that would be, people would stand up and say, you know what, there's a better way to teach this. Let's just preach the truth mm-hmm. and then let everything else just be what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And I really do value and, and hold that to be a beautiful aspect of the way that our church culture functions there. We don't go out and fight against other churches, but this church of the devil I find that, you know, contend, you know, you know this verb to contend. Mm-hmm. And and so how do we contend with the devil? But by taking upon ourselves the name of Christ, because when we have contend with no church, save it be the church of the devil. And then the next verse is, but take upon you the name of Christ. That's how we contend. We contend by being Jesus Christ and following him to Calvary. That's how we contend against the church of the devil. See, the church of the devil will use all of the tools of the world. It'll use violence and it it will use coercion. It'll use manipulation. But Jesus Christ does not use any of that. He uses persuasion and long-suffering and gentleness and meekness, all without any compulsory means. And so this is what we really have to start recognizing is that to really build Zion— to really follow Christ, to really be that that has taken upon themselves the name of Christ, 
We do this in every aspect of our lives. If we're truly honest with this principle, we're going to find out that this has application into our quote-unquote real life in ways that we probably haven't really anticipated or expected before. Yeah, I think this applies to what we were talking about last podcast when we went into yielding or not yielding, but also not resisting. The light that shineth in the darkness type of thing, right? Yeah, the enduring that, of the end. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that this contending against the church of the devil, um, I think that's a kind of like a perception thing, right? Because when you speak the truth, right? When you take upon yourself the name of Christ and speak the truth, then the darkness has to flee, right? This metaphorical type of thing. And so it can be seen as if the light is contending against the darkness, but there's not really any like fighting going on there. It's just existing (laughs) and the darkness has to leave it. So, yeah, I think a lot of the times we take this whole contend, don't, you know, contend against no church, they would be the church of the devil. I think a lot of People who, you know, I'm thinking missionaries and, and the times when I was on a mission and I was still learning and I was still growing and I wasn't completely mature, but I'm still out there representing the church. <laughs> and I think about <laughs> President Hinckley all the time. He's like, hey, the church has to be true or else our missionaries would have destroyed it a long time ago. <laughs> now, I, I, that, that was me, right? I, I, was, I, I, I placed myself in that. But even people that we disagree with, maybe politically, maybe religiously, maybe on on just a particular ethical issue. We take our position to be the true position, and maybe we have a scripture to back it up. Maybe we have a way to be able to, and we want to contend, and anybody who doesn't have our interpretation of the scripture is obviously on the other side of that conversation. Because if we can use our scriptures to be able to contend about this particular issue this way, anyone who doesn't agree with it must be on the other side of the debate, Must must be on the devil's side. And so we do justify ourselves a lot of the time doctrinally in how we argue, even with each other in our own ranks, about how these scriptures apply. It's just one of those things I think we need to be aware of. Well, this is this is an interesting scripture here because when Christ comes to the Nephites, he he says, sort of reformulated, he basically says that contention is the church of the devil, right? That such, and then he says, "This is not my doctrine." My doctrine is that such things should be done away. So it's almost like contend against no church, save it be the church of the devil. And if you're contending, then you're of the church of the devil <laughs> type of thing, right? So it, it's just an interesting way of, of, of putting that um, almost a type of a paradoxical thing. So, Yeah, and in verse 23, it really kind of drives the point home. Behold, Jesus Christ is the name which is given of the Father, and there is none other given whereby man can be saved. Wherefore, all men must take upon them the name which is of, given of the Father, for in that name shall they be called at the last day. That's King Benjamin. That's like Mosiah chapter 5 right there. Yeah, that's Mosiah coming out. Yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing. And then in verse 25, it takes this weird turn. Wherefore, if they know not the name by which they are called, they cannot have a place in the kingdom of my Father. And I was like, that's kind of a, a weird exclusionary verse that just kind of comes at the tail end of that. But as I've been thinking about that, I think that this is far more descriptive than it is prescriptive. It's right. not as though you just go through some kind of ritual, you end up getting your work done, you're like, I got the name, and, and you just like prance right into the kingdom of heaven and it's like, oh, sucks for you that you don't have the name, and, the, and that's it, right? That's not the way this is working. What this is, is that we take our discipleship and we 
come into this way of being as Christ is. For me, it's the Beatitude. You know, the Beatitudes contain the entire story of what this is about, from the emptying in the morning and the meekness inheriting the earth and the, and the, the being filled with righteousness and, and demonstrating mercy and pure, pure, uh, purity of heart and being the peacemaker and, and then truly getting persecution. That's just one of those things, man, we got such a persecution complex. Everybody disagrees with us and we're like, yeah, you disagree with me. I'm persecuted. (laughs) And that's just, that's just not the way this works. But for those that are truly following the path of the peacemaker, that's where the persecution comes into play. And so when we come into being, you know, the, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are they which are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so when we talk about here that only those who take upon themselves the name of the Christ will be able to have a kingdom with my Father, you know, this is kind of, this is beatitude stuff for me. That this is that path that, listen, unless you've really emptied that ego and you've gotten rid of the earthly identities, all those things that have held you captive, have caused you anxiety and panic and dread and anger and animosity and othering, all those things, all those identities that you thought you were right and you pigeonholed everybody else into the wrong corner. All of those times that we do those things, every time we try to win a fight, you got to let all that go. You just got to set all that stuff down and it's going to be hard. You're going to mourn, right? You know, we've been over this beatitude topic a lot. And so you just kind of let that go. But if you don't do that, you're not going to come into the peace of our our Heavenly Father. That's really where I'm reading verse 25 right now. It's not that Jesus is coming on and being like, listen, unless you got my name stamped on your forehead, you're not getting entrance. This is far more descriptive. Unless you've really taken that time to see your true self, you're not going to even want to be here. It's not going to be something that you're going to recognize. It's not going to be something that you even want to be around. And when it's that way, you're like, okay, well, I get that. Yeah, I don't see it as something imposed. This is, like you said, this is descriptive of our state and our perception. It's it's epistemic, right? Not not uh, not some some like uh, geographical thing. <laughs> So the rest of section 18, we talk about the 12 apostles and the calling of the 12 12 apostles and what what they're going to be, the disciples that he chooses, and what their cause is going to be. At this point, you know, there's a lot of, I I love how much it talks about repentance. I mean, that's really just the name of the game in all of this. Mm -hmm. It is though the world does not know who I am. And this is what we are about ready to change. We are going to show the world who I really am. And when when you put it in those terms, I get I get excited. I'm like, yeah, let's go out there and to show the love of God. Let's let's go out to show who this guy really is. This person who we we worship and that is always there for us and sacrifices with us. Let's go talk about this guy. Let's bring this guy in. And it, it really does. I would have been really excited with that <laughs> with that message. I still get excited with that message. What, what am I talking about? <laughs> so as we move on into 19, we are going <laughs> we're going to shift tones because all of a sudden we're talking to Martin Harris now and if you ever go back, if you go back through the times he talks to Martin Harris, there's this weird juxtaposition. If you just turn the pages, whenever he's talking to Martin Harris, it's like this really really direct judgmental 
punishing, just destructive God comes out to play. <laughs> Do you think that's what like that's what Martin Harris needed? That's what did it for him? I don't, you know, I don't know. As I was, <laughs> I was, I was reading through it this time. So, as I've said a few times, the my goal with going through the Doctrine and Covenants this year, at least one of the many ideas that I have going through this year, is to really see what is God and what is Joseph. And and I had a conversation on social media at one point, and someone kind of laughed, like, "Well, how are you going to do that?" And I'm like, "That's a really good question. How would you do something like that?" And for me, at least anyway, it really does come back to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. It's to find that aspect, that character of God in the Sermon on the Mount, and then to use the principles in section 121, 41 through 45, because no power or influence can or even ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood except by, and you list all these virtues, right? So it's, if the priesthood is the power and the authority of God, if that's what he is, if that's what he's given, if that's what's coming forward. If that's what he's given his children to do all of his work, and those are the principles that govern that priesthood. And also, if we go back to the Sermon on the Mount that's given in Matthew and in the Book of Mormon, and that we, we've pulled out all over the place, those same messages all over the place, that has to be a good hermeneutic to be able to then use to find God on all the other pages. And then to kind of see, well, maybe there's some... <laughs> Maybe there's some other things here that aren't Joseph. And we know from section one and from section 67 that there was a lot of Joseph that came into the text. We already told the story that Joseph had a particular way of speaking. And some of the people were embarrassed because of Joseph's tone in speaking and his way of being that ended up making its way to flavor the pages. And so based on that, we do already know, and in fact, God specifically identifies it. He speaks to his people through their language and through their weakness. And the Lord says, listen, if you're, if you're not happy with Joseph Smith's tone, if you're not happy with this, then why don't you go do your own revelation? And everyone kind of twiddled their thumbs. Ask better questions. <laughs> Ask better questions. <laughs> and, and so part of my intent is not to, it's not to disparage Joseph. That's not it at all. It's really this beautiful attempt to be able to, because of my love and admiration for him, is, is to really see who and what he was and what his emotions were going through these. Because he's, he's not going through life as just in one human emotion. He's not receiving these revelations in just one way. He, he's a human being who is working out his own salvation and his, his emotions are going to come out in these in these revelations. Yeah, he's not just some dispassionate conduit, you know, that things come right. through. No, exactly. Yeah. And so it's not to look at these sections to be able to disparage Joseph. Okay, well, let's let's just diminish everything Joseph said and then only stick to God. That's not it at all. It's really a love for Joseph and an incredibly deep love for God to be able to say, all right, what is this about God? And where is God shining through all the cracks? What's Joseph? And what was Joseph going through? And if we know what Joseph is going through, if Joseph can get a revelation while still being mad, and that's where where I kind of get into it. And I don't mind going out into kind of these extra, kind of the weeds, as it were, into into some of these thoughts. You mean heresy? (laughs) (laughs) Some some ultra-Orthodox would maybe say that. (laughs) <laughs> no, but for, for me, I don't have any problem with thinking, you know what? Maybe Joseph was still angry at Martin Harris. Maybe there was some residual anger there. I, you know, Joseph did at times exhibit a hot temper. 
and he did get angry pretty quick. And those lost pages were a really, really big deal. And they really, really impacted Joseph in some very significantly negative ways. And we never really hear Joseph talking kindly about Martin Harris since. <laughs> it's just hmm. one of those things. But Martin Harris is always still showing up. But Joseph yeah. forgives him. He brings him into his home. And Martin Harris just keeps showing I, I I've had people in my life like that who I'm just like, I just, I don't want to be around this person right now. But they just keep showing up. <laughs> and And I don't want to be mean. And I'm like... There's a reason. There's a reason why they're coming around right now. And it, that's usually where I like, all right, God, what what is going on here? As soon as I recognize my own pride in those moments, I'm like, all right, God, Father, you need to tell me what's going on here. A poor wayfaring man of grief, Shadow. <laughs> that's usually what it ends up being. <laughs> There's something there that needs to be addressed. There's some kind of human suffering or human connection that needs to be made. Mm-hmm. And, and so I see that with Martin a lot and I, I don't know, it, it, I'd have to do a whole lot more research to be able to figure out exactly if we know at all what Joseph's feelings are here, but this we do know there is a very real shift and tone when it's directed towards Martin and maybe it's exactly what he needed. Like you said, Ben, maybe Joseph's just having just, he just can't get over it. And he's like, all right. There has to be a revelation to Martin. He's asking for a revelation again. <sighs> All right. Well, it's not going to be a nice one. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I I love being able to see the humanity in how the restoration of the gospel came forward. Because these are imperfect people doing imperfect work for a perfect being. And it's always been that case. It'll always be that way. But for me, I always want to be humble enough with the text and humble enough with these people that I can look at these people and say, you know, is this the way? And I don't want to put God into a box and be like, yep, the scripture is to say exactly this, and that's what it's going to be. So I don't want to do that either. So section 19, let's do it. Yeah, so, uh, you know, starting off here, he, he uh, Christ introduces himself to Alpha and Omega, which... Um, you know, is this this great symbolism that I think is lost on on most um, modern readers, or maybe not most. Maybe that's not a fair word. A lot of modern readers, we don't even know what alpha is or omega is. But these are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, right? So Christ, it's just him saying, "I'm the first and the last." Where there's a lot of discussion, we could go into a lot of discussion about what uh, it means that Christ is the first and the last. Um, but you know, he's identifying himself uh, by this characteristic. I'd like to look at verse four a bit here. He says, and surely every man must repent or suffer for I, God, am endless. This is an interesting juxtaposition between repentance and suffering, right? That his, uh, God's proposition here to us is that we can alleviate suffering by repenting. In other words, we suffer needlessly in a lot of ways. And I don't think uh, all of our suffering is is needless or some of it's just inherent in our humanity and, and our experience and, and it's part of what we have to experience. 
But so much of our suffering is self-imposed based on our view of who God is and our relationship with him that's not based in reality. And so we're suffering based on a false view of reality. And God is like, well, you could just repent <laughs> and change your view of of me and, and the way things are, and then you wouldn't suffer like that anymore. So I, I think that's a really interesting thing here. He says, every man must repent or suffer. It's not like a threat. It's just stating reality, right? Yeah, far more descriptive than prescriptive, where I think a lot of the times we read as though God is coming down to set the rules for the condition here. You know, the, here's the conditions of the things you need to follow. Whereas when it's descriptive, it's more of like there's a God that's sitting down there next to you and, and kind of taking his hand out in front of you and trying to kind of show you the landscape. Like, here's, what, here's the way things are. Here's the way this thing works. And then allowing us to go through and to make all of the, the right and the wrong choices. I don't want to get into relativity here. It's not relativity, but it's a lot of what we call right or wrong choices depends on where we're going on this landscape. You know, so so we're allowed to go on this adventure, and and so that's where we head off, and we've been given instruction. And so when we take off and we start going down this road, there's going to be things that we like stumble and fall, and and things that Father has instructed us to be able to do one way or the other, and He's given us these these this knowledge that if we do things this particular way, there's going to be these consequences, and we do it anyway, and we know there are going to be consequences we don't like, and and those happen. But I don't see. My view of God and the concept of like shame has radically changed in my life where I cannot find anywhere room for a God that uses shame as a motivating tool for change. Mm -hmm. That's a false self egoistic way of looking at it. And that's a discussion in itself. But we do, we just, we go through this life and we get to make these choices. And God knew we were going to make choices according to the false self. <laughs> it's just that was going to be the way it is. And then we learn then we learn how to recognize what we've always already been with that true self. It usually ends up being far more. And I love that, that every man must repent or suffer. One of the things we look here, though, is that suffering is usually caused by like sin. And not all suffering is sin. Right. You know, there's, there's, there are sufferings that happen that even if we have the absolute eternal view, even if we have all knowledge, Jesus still wept. Jesus knew that he was going to die. He knew that he was going to be resurrected. He knew that Lazarus was going to die. He knew that Lazarus would be resurrected. He knew what was going to happen, but yet Jesus wept. And it's in this, his ability of being able to be sorrowful with those that are sorrowful, of him being there to, to experience the moment to still be sad when moments are sad. And he does that with us. Once I grasped a hold of that new kind of God, everything changed for me. It was so radically different than everything that I'd ever held before. You know, this section can sound, I, I think, 
It can sound very vindictive, um, violent at some points, like we're talking about a vengeful god. And I think there's some keys throughout it that really can change how the Lord wants us to, to view what he's saying here. Or I don't, I don't know if wants us is right, invites us to view the way he's seeing that we're seeing it here. Um, and so, we can read, uh, we can read some of these verses here that talk about, you know, it says, uh, eternal punishment is God's punishment. Endless punishment is God's punishment. Wherefore, I command you to repent and keep the commandments which you have received by the hand of my servant Joseph Smith Jr. in my name. And then verse 15, therefore, I command you to repent. Repent, lest I smite you by the rod of my mouth and by my wrath and by my anger. And your sufferings be sore, how sore you know not, how exquisite you know not, yea, how hard to bear you know not. So, especially this verse here can be difficult to try to pull out and say, well, you know, he doesn't mean it in this way, because it can sound very threatening, right? And it's difficult to interpret it any other way than that God is threatening us, that if you don't repent, then I'm going to smite you, right? First off, uh, there's several ways to view this. One, I think, is the symbolism that he's talking about here. We talked about like the cherubim and and the sword and and the rod and the mouth, right? And he says, "Smite you by the rod of my mouth." Well, this isn't a um, like something that evokes pain or is is like a a torture type of thing, right? The rod of his mouth is his word. And if we don't uh, see him in this new way, right, then this smiting with the rod of the mouth, this is how the gospel comes to persuade us to that repentance one way or another. And Alma talks about this in like chapter 32, where he says, you know, we can, we can choose to be humble or we can be compelled to be humble. He doesn't say in anywhere there that it's God compelling us to be humble, but it's just the straight circumstances of our life and experience that can so often bring us there. And so what can so often happen is that we can either choose to repent or what does it say earlier in here or suffer, you know, (laughs) we can continue on with this life and viewing reality in, in such and such a way that we are um, imposing out upon ourselves, these types of sufferings that aren't, aren't necessary. But when the gospel, the good news comes along that it can actually alleviate that it can it can bring us to a new way of viewing god that i kind of went off on a little tangent there my point here about the section at large is that we see a lot of these little clues about what what the lord wants us to read into this i actually take this from over uh we start start in verse 21 he says i command you that you preach not but repentance Okay, so first, teach the people to repent, to view me in this new way, a way different from what the way they've been viewing me. They've been viewing me as a vengeful, angry, punishing God, which he just kind of outlined in these previous verses, right? And he says, show not these things unto the world until it is wisdom in me. Okay, first, people need to understand who I am. They need to understand my love for them. They need to understand 
who Christ is and and why he's showing them the way, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And once they see that, he says here, for they cannot bear meat now, but milk they must receive, wherefore they must not know these things lest they perish. Then he says here, learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit and you shall have peace in me. And and here it 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 seems to be saying to me that this section, but really all other scripture, should be taken in the context of a person who knows and has a deep relationship with God, that knows of his love, has experienced it, and is unshaken in their view and love for God. And once they have that, and they really know who he is, then they go back and read these verses, the parts and about that seem threatening or vengeful or even have the word anger in them don't have the same effect on them. They don't, they don't cause them to fear God in the same way that they might someone who doesn't have that experience with who God is. And so that's what I see here. I see that the Lord is telling them, Hey, these things belong for those that truly have entered into this experience and have had the experience of who I am, then when they see this and read this, they'll have a different understanding than the world at large may have of this who haven't experienced that. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think that really clarifies a lot of things here You know, that, that could otherwise be a lot of stumbling blocks in how we view God. I've read these things and I've seen a, a vengeful God that I couldn't make sense out of. And that's that's part of my goal with with recording these was is just to be able to talk about a, a new way of looking at God that I never heard anybody talking about. And all we have to do is just change a few things. And for me, it's the like I was just talking about the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, where we just have to be able to see God a little bit different. And all of a sudden, it's like the floodgates break open and we, we begin to see this new wondrous way that God is with us. And it's almost like, well, like I've been experiencing, this is what I've really been experiencing. This is the thing that I've really been experiencing with God. It's just, I've been looking at it through the eyes of this conditional, vengeful, punishing God. But I've really only been experiencing this kind, loving, merciful, charitable, reconciliatory God. And so it's, it's that we're like, we experience the one God, but we're told the other one exists. And one of the things, one of the clues I really like here in verse six and seven, when it says, nevertheless, it is not written that there shall be no end to this torment, but it is written endless torment. That's a really weird verse. I'm going to read it again. Nevertheless, it is not written. So it's not written that there shall be no end to this torment. So in other words, that this, what they call endless torment is not actually endless torment. There's no such thing as endless torment. So like this whole hell thing of like endless torment, it's not a thing. Torment that has no end. Like a torment that has no end. Right. Endless is he saying, this is the great mystery. My name is endless. And you're like, I, you know, my mind, you're it's like, almost dun, like dun, a semantics dun. game. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And God's like, are you are you ready for this? I'm about ready to like drop something on you. But and you know, and then also eternal is his name. So eternal damnation. Well, 
damnation is not really a state of being. It's more of a hindrance of progression. It's one of those things where God is always working there with us, and we choose not to progress forward. God never keeps us from progressing forward. We stop us from moving forward. We're the ones that do put the brakes on that. And so when he talks about eternal punishment is God's punishment and endless punishment is God's punishment, he's talking about the his name, that this is coming from God. Let me tell you what I'm trying to show you about this new way of being with God. I'm not thrusting you down to hell forever. I'm not even, I'm not even doing this. This is just reality. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just a reality here. And it's like God is synonymous with reality, right? So this is just the way things are. But it's not always going to be that way. And, you know, we get into this whole repent lest I smite you with the rod of my mouth. And we've talked about this before. You know, the smiting with the rod of my mouth. Well, that's the word of God. We start we start to like break these things down. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm going to smite you with the word. <laughs> like, all right. And and I've talked about my own my own experience, like with the bishop, right? And I went in, and the bishop was able to tell me how much he loved me and how what a powerful effect that was. Just that declaration of love, it stopped me in my tracks. That's what I imagine in these things, in my wrath and in my anger, in those moments when I have been living in my false self and seeing God and projecting God the, the false self onto God. I saw a wrathful and an angry God because I was wrathful and angry and I projected that inner anger onto God. God had to be that way because no no God could possibly be different than my anger and my wrath. So then we come down here to verse 18 and a lot of this is, you know, we take these scriptures so literally. So I'm going to get into the literal portion here in verse 18. I've been excited about it. I'm going to, I'm going to say this. Okay. So in verse 18, it's a very popular verse. It's a very well-known verse. Where Jesus comes along and he says, For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. All right, so very well-known verses. Which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain, and to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father, and I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. These verses are beautiful. It really shows the love and compassion of Jesus Christ and what he was willing to come. But in a lot of ways, we have to start to recognize that a lot of these descriptions of these beautiful moments and these beautiful things are hyperbole. They're venturing into getting a lot of poetic license. So this, this verse, for instance, to bleed at every pore, this is just not a thing. For instance, you know, so I went through and I, <laughs> I've done this a, a dozen times, but I've looked it up and I finally wrote it into my scripture. So I have it all in the margins now, but there are 5 million pores on the average human body, 5 million. And if we assume that there was one drop of blood per pore, that means there's 5 million drops and the, the standard weight and the standard measurement of a drop is a 0.05 milliliters. That means that 20 drops is a milliliter. So that means that there are 250,000 milliliters of blood if you have, if you sweat one drop of blood per 5 million pores on an estimate. Okay. This also means that that, that comes down to 250 liters of blood. That's an equivalent of 60, just a little over 66 gallons worth of blood. 
Now, if we assume that the atonement lasted for three hours, it, it said that it lasted between one and three hours. And that means that it's 66 gallons of blood shed over a over a three-hour period. That's roughly 22 gallons of blood an hour, or 36.36 gallons a minute. Okay. So why this stupid math? I mean, I, I get it. This is really stupid math, and this is really going beyond the mark, and, and even for me. But when we really boil down to it, the human body has 1.2 to 1.5 gallons of blood, depending on who it is, how big they are, body weight, size, height. Now, if we donate one pint of blood, it takes anywhere between 24 to 48 hours for the plasma to regenerate. It takes upwards to four to six weeks for the red blood cells to replicate. That means that blood is not replicating very fast, right? And so it doesn't, for Jesus to be there in the Garden of Gethsemane and to, and to sweat from every pore is not a real thing. Now, even if we were to say it's even one-tenth, one-tenth of a drop, so it's not even a full drop, it's just one-tenth, it just it barely came from that, even just one-tenth, that still means that that's 6.6 gallons over three hours. That still means that that's roughly two gallons, it's just over two gallons, uh, 2.2 gallons an hour. The human body only contains 1.2 to 1.5 gallons. It doesn't replenish. So either what this verse is telling us is that Jesus had a completely different physiology than the rest of us have, that his body did something completely different than the rest of us have, and I'm open to that. But the context of this verse doesn't lend to any of that understanding that Jesus is giving us some nuance into his physiology. And if he is giving us some nuance into his physiology, then he we have a different theological problem because it means that he has a different body than we have, which means he's having a different kind of human experience than we're having which kind of defeats the whole purpose of him coming and having te- being tested in that whole thing. So in this way, when we, we read that to bleed at every pore, this is a little bit of hyperbole. And I know that we love, you know, I love the talk too from President Faust when he says, I wonder how, when he questioned, I wonder how many drops of blood Jesus shed for me. And the answer is, in reality, none. Like, like there was no drop of blood that had my name on it. In fact, if we were to talk about 7 billion plus people who've lived on the earth, that's that's not going to be a thing. Well, that's a rhetorical meditative point, right? That's and exactly I, you know, right. And I don't know exactly how President Faust took it, but we could take it that way in, in very easily and derive quite a bit of meaning from it still. Just like this verse says, you know, this is uh, in this exact same chapter, just verses before, he already got semantics about Oh, eternal doesn't mean that. It means this because I'm I'm applying it to this sense. And so when when Christ speaks in this way, there's you know hyperbole, which is a very useful rhetorical tool in scripture. You know, it's all over in scripture. And so to use it in this context is fine. Um, we just have to make sure that we don't take it down the wrong wrong road, like you're talking about. <laughs> Right. And, and that's the entire point. It's really to kind of hammer home a, a particular point. It's a very nuanced point. I really don't know how many people really honestly believe this. And that's why I think it's a really good scripture to actually make this kind of almost absurdist point um, to be able to, you know, it's like, Shiloh, why did you just spend five minutes talking about something stupid? <laughs> it, it, because it's something that we are able to look at the scriptures when it seems like there is a direct revelation from God to the prophet, to the page, when 
there is nuance there. There is hyperbole. There, there is something else going on there. And I love that you just brought that up with endless, right? So now we have semantics that are going on that we have to take these into account when we are reading the scriptures. And that goes back to what I said before. I'm, I'm very interested to see what, what is God and what is Joseph and, and, and what's really coming out of both of those characters in coming down to the words of the page because we see God's intentionality coming in. Sometimes we see Joseph coming in. So I don't know if this is Joseph or Jesus because I can't really put a Sermon on the Mount hermeneutic here to really figure it out. But at least we can say that God's either being nuanced or Joseph is. But then we get to choose, we get to choose and to bring that discussion in when we're reading the scriptures. So at least as we're reading the rest of the Doctrine and Covenants, we can keep that kind of stuff in mind that, huh, I wonder if this really means explicitly what I, what everybody thinks this really means, or maybe there's room for other interpretation that we can grow and repent and be able to build upon. Well, there's, there's a lot to discuss here. And, and as I said earlier, a lot of times when we get into a discussion of the atonement, we have to be careful, I think, not to try to get so analytical of it because it, in my opinion, <laughs> the whole point of the atonement is that it's this personal individual experience that each of us needs to have the experience of getting so analytical in it as, as I have seen and even read some quote unquote scholars do, I think really detracts from that concept and it detracts from the, the deeper spiritual connection and meeting that we can have. But I do really like the the talk. I haven't read it in a while. I need to pull it back up again. Um, I should have thought of it before we started the podcast. But Elder Holland gave a talk a while back where um, he was discussing or talking about the atonement of Christ and and particularly the concept of of his loneliness, the fact that he was alone. And I, I thought it was he made some really good points in there and some things to ponder on um, about Christ's experience and how through that he was able to experience and understand our mortal experience in a a way that even we don't understand right and in such a profound way that we can rely on his experience as something that uh, we know that he can be with us in and that's what i see here in these verses he's he's saying there is nothing that you could possibly suffer that i won't understand I went through it all. And so there's where the hyperbole comes from. I bled from every poor. Okay, like all of them. So there's no poor you can bleed from that I don't get that. I don't understand. Right? And that's that's sort of the symbolism for me, you know, is that there's no single part of your human experience or part of your body or, or anything that anybody has undergone that I cannot understand. I understand it all. And I did it alone which you cannot understand. You will never understand that. You may in a little bit understand it if you if you want to be alone, but you don't have to be alone. You know, here in verse 20, he says, Wherefore I command you again to repent, lest I humble you with my almighty power, and that you confess your sins, lest you suffer, you suffer these punishments of which I have spoken, of which in the smallest, yea, even in the least degree, you have tasted at the time I withdrew my spirit. Now we can talk about that phrase withdrew my spirit as if it's, you know, God withdrawing himself from us. But, uh, you know, if you have any comment on that, that's fine. I, I don't think that's exactly what's happening. Again, this is a matter of perception from the person, you know, when we see God withdrawing his spirit from us, but that's, that's not what's happening. You know, we're withdrawing ourselves from him, but he's referencing what happened here 
I believe, uh, this earlier time when they lost 116 pages and they withdrew themselves and they felt the suffering, this pain because of the way that they viewed God. And they were so alone in that. They were so isolated. They didn't, um, they weren't mourning together. You know, they, they were just angry and, and thought all was lost. I see Christ's experience in the atonement as when he experiences the suffering, but then he also goes farther and experiences it alone so that he can truly say and we can have faith and believe and trust that he not only understands all of our pain, but he even understands it to such a degree that we, you know, there's nothing worse than suffering except suffering alone, right? And and the very fact that if you have somebody there with you, it somehow alleviates suffering in, in an inexplicable way. And I think that's what Elder Holland was kind of getting at with that, is that the the infiniteness of it, infinity of it, I guess is the right word, of the atonement is largely in that it was done alone. You know, he says, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? He experienced that, that loneliness so that he could understand us. I loved what she brought up about 18 and going back to the bleeding at every pore as an as a way of being able to communicate and say, listen, there, there's nothing that you, you're going through that I, I won't be there with you with. That I won't be there next to you suffering this with you. Yeah, I really like that. I really like that. And as as for the withdrawing of the Spirit, you know, we talk about it in these terms, and I wonder what Martin Harris needed to know in that. The withdrawing of the Spirit... I've often wondered, is God really so offended that he's like, Yoink, you know, I've got to take my spirit back. He's like, Whoa. or is it that God is always there? He's always, but he knows that Joseph and Martin, they were acting in that false self. They, they, they were acting in that, that prideful, arrogant egoism of fearing man more than God, of being able to said it not the counsels of God. They weren't following after the the direction that God was giving them. And in their eyes, they lost the time and the labor and the painstaking labor that they put into this thing for months. I know maybe I, I, I'm still thinking in some ways, Joseph is still a little bit upset. <laughs> even, even I'm, I'm still kind of going back to that. I'm, I think I'm going to hold on to that until I, until I get some uh, objective verification. No, but when we see that this is this has affected them so heavily, and they really do feel that God has left them, you know that's the, that's the mindset that comes in. So this is one of those things that I see as more as a Joseph moment, that time when I withdrew my spirit. That's kind of from Joseph's perspective. Yet God left us, and I I don't know if God ever leaves us. I just don't know if that's a thing. My experience is not. Because it's in, in those times when I've not ex- I've not deserved God, when I've I've lived a life where I've I've done nothing to deserve it, I've done nothing to to qualify for it or to earn it or to do anything. The God's proactivity and love and hyperactivity in my life broke through my apathy and saved me. 
I can't imagine a God that's weaker than my sin and who wants to leave because of my sin, where my sin drives God away. Is is that really the God that I worship that is so just repulsed by it that he's like, no, I'm just not going to, and he leaves. And so there's, I'm just, that's just not the God I see. And that's not the God I've experienced. In fact, it's, it's the opposite of the God I've experienced. But I have shut myself off to God before. I have been in a place where I've turned off every light that I can. And I just let myself be in the dark. I've chosen that life. And what I found is that God came through and turned the light back on for me. He broke through that barrier. And he touched my heart. And so in these things, I see, I don't necessarily the God withdrawing, but Joseph and Martin perceiving that. So yeah, I like that a lot, Ben, that, uh, that you brought that up there. There's some thoughts that have been going through my head about about how that God withdrawing and, and the light and and being alone and being a perception applies to what Christ experienced. And, and I don't know that I've, I've formed them well enough to articulate them, but um, it's something that I'm, I'm going to be thinking about. You know, as we're going through this, I'm remembering a discussion we had back, uh, I believe it was when we were doing Alma chapter 41, 42, something like that. And Alma gets into a discussion of justice and mercy. And, and so often this comes into play when we, um, talk about the atonement in terms of, um, penal substitution where Christ's suffering was actually to like pay the debt to justice for our sins. As if there's like this cosmic justice that exists within the fabric of space time, right? And that God has to satisfy this, this, um, beast of justice right <laughs> um and I, I i don't view it that way anymore if i ever did um i think maybe it was doctrinally explained to me that way before but i i, I just don't i don't think that fits with the character of god i mean at least it doesn't that view doesn't um reveal anything um, useful or loving or profound to me about the character of God. And it doesn't improve my relationship with him at all. And so I don't see any value in it. So when we ask this question, you know, why did Christ suffer at all? Why did he suffer? I think there's probably uh, an infinite number of answers to that. Some of the things that come to mind are that his suffering is a way to show us to to demonstrate to us and I kind of take this from Jacob's admonition to us that that we view his suffering you know and 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 cross and and follow him and so it's it's almost like Christ is showing this to us well what is he showing us um I think he's showing us that suffering doesn't imply sin I think you brought this up earlier that a lot of times when we we see um suffering around us or we see our own suffering we are liable to um to infer that it's the cause or the effect of sin. Um 
you know, we talked earlier about repent or suffer, and there is a certain type of suffering that is a result of sin or of, of, um, you know, I don't know if it's a result of sin as much as a result to, of not repenting, which you could say those are the same thing, but I think they're not. You know, suffering is more a result of a refusal to repent. Um, but not all suffering is that. Some suffering is just uh, our experience. It's about who we are as children of God and this experience that we're having. And Christ experienced it as well with no sin whatsoever. And so we need to, we need to see that, I think, a little more and, and recognize that just because we see suffering or we're experiencing suffering doesn't mean we can immediately say, oh, this is because of sin. But if it allows us to be humble and repent, even if we're not repenting of sin per se, if we're simply repenting of, uh, if we're repenting in the sense that we're coming to know God better than we did before, then suffering is good because it brings us to that repentance, to a view of who God is in a better way. And I think the atonement does that for us. I think it also shows us that our demands for justice only make suffering worse. Like when when we demand justice, we're torturing ourselves or we're torturing others in that sense. We can't understand and exact justice in in the right way. Uh, we're not just. And so we we can't do it. And so all we do in our demands for justice is impose more suffering. I think it shows us that God is not immune to suffering, that it's part of his experience as well, that suffering is part of who God is, and Christ came to show us that as God. And because of that, he understands all of our deepest pain, as we discussed before. And I think it also shows us that mercy can overpower our demands for justice. Um, as strong as our sense and desire of justice is, that mercy can overpower that. As Alma talks about, he talks about mercy overpowering the demands of justice. And I see that as Christ coming to us and saying, hey, lay down your arms or lay down your just, lay down your demands for justice and follow me on the path of mercy. That's another thing that I see the atonement showing us. But like I said, there's, there's just a ton of these types of things that I think can be infinite answers to it. But I think they're all better answers to the question of, of why Christ suffered than, well, he's satisfying this cosmic justice. I think, you know, he's satisfying our demands for justice, not some like, uh, universal, uh, law of physics type justice thing. Yeah. When I, I don't even remember when I first came up with that. Maybe it was with what you had said on one of the podcasts there with that. Uh, I think it was, I think it was something that you had initially said when I first had that idea of, of suffering for our concept of justice. I've sat with that for so long and the longer I sit with it, the, the better it tastes. And it just, it, it feels good. And it fits so seamlessly into all of the stories of Christ's forgiveness and of those moments and of what forgiveness, you know, forgiveness is one of those really complicated topics that I found that I've thought a lot about 
because it's, I was like, why does God forgive us for sin? Like, what did, what did we do against God when we sinned against ourselves? Like, like, what is that? Like, what does God forgive us for those kinds of things? And it's like someone speeds down the road and then they come and they knock on, you know, it's not even on my street and they come and they have to knock and tell me they're sorry and I have to forgive them. I'm like, I didn't even have anything to do with that. Um, and so I've wondered like, why, why that thing, you know, and forgiveness also, it's that we've harmed someone else that we've been harmed that, that, that there's been harm done. Anyway, not to get into a big discussion about forgiveness, but yeah, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of those concepts that I think are more easily understood with justice being about man's construct of justice than positing some universal axiomatic natural law, you know, natural law justice that exists out there that really does come down to our own constructs of what we feel is right or wrong as per the culture we we live in. Because what we consider is just today is not just from 50 years ago. And from then, what's just for even 60 years from before then? You know, we march on with different concepts and different ways of viewing that. And so for Jesus to be able to come down and say, I satisfy the demands for all of your ideas of justice. is simply powerful because then we really recognize how much we heap upon ourselves that justice. We wield the sword of justice. And he's, and then that's when he's really sacrificing for that, for our cause of it. And I think it's, a, it's just a, it's a very humbling way of looking at that. You had brought up repentance in that new way. I, I had a moment I posted on social media. I don't even remember why I brought it up, but uh, I wrote out about uh, an experience that I've had. And I think I've shared it once before years and years ago, maybe when we, uh, when I first started doing different memes for LDS Liberty. For the, the, the listeners who aren't maybe aware, Ben and I, years and years ago, we had started a podcast for a project called LDS Liberty. And that was started back in, uh, oh goodness, when was that started? 2009, 2008, 2009, um, from a mutual friend of Ben and I's, JC Ballers, who uh, he passed away from cancer uh, here several years ago. But um, LDS Liberty was a kind of a politically, or it wasn't kind of, it was a, an explicitly politically oriented project. When it started, and yes. It, when it started, right? And it was all about the Constitution and about agency and the Founding Fathers and capitalism and free markets. And it was all in, in, a, in a topic to be able to talk to members of the church. So we had collected quotes from members of the general authorities and from leaders of the church all about these topics. Everything from good government and what bad government is, anti-socialism, anti-communism, free market. Anyway. We had libraries of quotes about government and politics and agency. And over the years, we would just make memes and we would share them on our Facebook page, LDS Liberty. And man, they took off. Man, they just, they went, some of those things went viral being shared 10,000 10, or more times over. Um, some of these memes just took off. And, you know, over the years, you know, I, we kind of dialed in on what uh, memes we could, uh, we could really make go viral. And the more we would make it anti-enemy, the more we can like a zinger quote, the, the memes that could be used, quotes from the general authorities that could really be used to otherize, you know, your political enemy, that guy over there who has such a different opinion than you, we could really find quotes that were they could really create a lot of good contention, right? Good contention, the the kind that really pushes people to want to share things to really irk their neighbors. <laughs> and so 
over time, I just got tired of it. I just got tired of being a part of that whole milieu of being able to, to, to share that kind of vitriol, even though it was coming from, you know, members of the, of the church who, who, or general authorities of the church who had originally said these things, the way I was sharing them and the way I was presenting them, the way we were putting out there was not creating goodwill. And so I started to influx those memes with other memes that uh, had quotes about peace, reconciliation, mercy, love, kindness. Because I'm like, hey, if you're going to share a quote about, uh, you know, from this prophet, you might share another quote about from the same prophet, right? And at first I thought there was an error or a glitch in Facebook's algorithm that uh, all of a sudden these peace memes, these, you know, the <laughs> all these messages about kindness and repentance and forgiveness like nobody nobody liked them let alone share them right but man i i put in a zinger quote there about talk. politics it's hippie <laughs> talk right i put in a quote there about uh about government and about the evils of socialism and, and about how people are going to destroy this country and all of a sudden it would take off again and it would, you know, <laughs> the algorithms are just like take off and shared you know hundreds and hundreds of times and liked thousands of times and i'm like what is going on with facebook and so I, I experimented with this one for a while and pretty, I, I caught on pretty quick to recognize that peace is not a message that people want to share. <laughs> it's just, it's doesn't just, sell well. it doesn't sell. Peace doesn't sell. Contention sells and othering sells and those kinds of things sell. So when I was writing this uh, post and, and talking about this experience on Facebook, I had mentioned that I had to repent from what I had been doing. And I gave up on the, the LDS Liberty Venture. And so largely what happened is we started Latter-day Peace Studies as kind of a response to our LDS Liberty Days. And so we ended up incorporating the LDS Liberty page, and, now, and that's now the Latter-day Peace Studies page. And as we have co combined the two pages together, because uh, we did start an LDS or Latter-day Peace Studies page that was separate from LDS Liberty, and we were just going to roll LDS Liberty into the Peace Studies but Facebook, for whatever reason, wouldn't do that. And so we had to then take our Peace Studies page and roll it into LDS Liberty so we could have just one page because we weren't going to be doing LDS Liberty work anymore. And once we started doing that and publishing Peace Studies posts, you know, peace, reconciliation, unity with God, forgiveness, um, we were finally able to merge those pages about two months, uh, maybe about six weeks ago. And... Over the last six weeks, we've lost 100 subscribers. And I've, I've laughed. <laughs> I've <laughs> laughed quite a bit because the message of peace apparently isn't sensational enough to be able to merit uh, sticking around. And so people have unsubscribed from the page. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of bottomed out now. And, you know, our, our images, our, our memes about peace from Latter-day Peace Studies have started to catch on more. And, and so it, we're not losing anymore. We're not hemorrhaging out anymore. And it's starting to grow back a little bit. But it was really interesting that for the last uh, several weeks, we've been noticing just a, a steady drop, you know, maybe 10, five to 10 likes um, in a given day. And, and we'll have some people coming in. But when I said that I had to repent of the old memes, there were a lot of people in that uh, on that thread that had taken it kind of in the old way. of like, well, I didn't think you sinned, Shiloh. I don't think you had anything to repent for. And, and so I had to clarify that repentance was not of that kind, that this isn't uh, the repentance that we've talked about in, in church and all these times of you've done something wrong. Now you've got to pay the penance. Now you've got to do your 
I know is it the four R's of repentance? Five R's? I, I know, I've never remember if there's four or five of those R's or whatever. Um, that that's not it at all. That repentance was I recognized that in my piety I was really trying to do something good, and there was a team of us, and we all tried to do something good, and we all tried to produce something that was better, and it just ended up being that we found out that what we were doing was not in fact good at all. <laughs> hmm. We were sharing a message from, from the general authorities, but the way that we were doing it and, and how we were going about doing it and the way that we were utilizing the social media platform did not inspire peace and reconciliation. So I stopped. I didn't want to be a part of that anymore. And, and so in that I recognize that I, God recognizes our good intentions. He recognizes the things in which we truly want to do what's right and when we finally come to a place and then like, oh, wait a minute, there's a better way. God's like, yep, there is. <laughs> and that humility of stepping into that moment of being like, oh, yeah, I see this better way. And you step into it and you become it. There's no like remorse for where you've been. There's no shame for the world that you came from. There's no... There's no destroying yourself or giving yourself bad narratives for the stepping stones that have led you to where you're at. Repentance was just, God awoke in something within me. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay, I'm going to be better. And just moving into that. And so I, when it, when there's so much of repentance in these sections, and the reason I tell that story is it was just one of those things that stood out to me about how we tend to look at repentance as something we have to do about sin after the fact in feeling these feelings of guilt and shame and remorse when maybe that's part of it too. I'm not going to dis disparage and say that has nothing to do with it, but at least for me, repentance 99% of the time has simply become those awakening moments when I'm reading the scriptures and there's like this new thing that stands out. And all of a sudden, I know I'm never going to see God differently because I see God in such a new and wonderful, loving way. That's repentance for me. And that's why it's so joyful for me now. It's learning how to share what's good and then being revealed better and be like, I'm going to do the better and then stepping into that. Well, I was just looking at some of these uh, verses here starting in 29. It goes well with what you were just talking about. He says... And thou shalt declare glad tidings, yea, publish it upon the mountains, and upon every high place, and among every people that thou shalt be permitted to see. And thou shalt do it with all humility, trusting in me, reviling not against revilers. And of tenets thou shalt not talk, but thou shalt declare repentance, and faith on the Savior, and remission of sins by baptism, and by fire, yea, even the Holy Ghost. Behold, this is a great... And the last commandment which I shall give unto you concerning this matter. For this shall suffice for thy daily walk, even unto the end of thy life. And I could have uh, stopped with that there, but you know, <laughs> there's whenever he talks to Martin Harris, he has that little pattern where it's like he gives him this really nice thing, and then there's the but. <laughs> Right? What did you say? He says, <laughs> And misery thou shalt receive if thou wilt slight these counsels, even unto the destruction of thyself and property. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he comes back here. He comes back from this and stuff. But it's just like, hey, Martin Harris, this is awesome. You've got this great charge and you're going to have peace if you, you do this. 
And if you don't, you're going to have misery. (laughs) (laughs) And then these last few verses are just beautiful. Like they should probably, I don't know, I should get these framed or maybe we should like, they should make a song out of this or something. Pray always and I will pour out my spirit upon you and great shall be your blessing. Yea, even more than if you should obtain treasures of earth and corruptibleness to the extent thereof. Behold, canst thou read this without rejoicing, and lifting up thy heart for gladness? Or canst thou run about longer as a blind guide? Or canst thou be humble and meek, and conduct thyself wisely before me? Yea, come unto me, thy Savior. Well, Ben, I don't know what to say after that. I love that. Come unto me, thy Savior. Me neither. I mean, there's the word amen. Well, good. Well, I am good. With, I am good for that. I think I've said everything that I came here to say with uh, with these sections. How about you? Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you everybody for staying with us and for and for listening, and and for taking your time. Join us back next week. We're going to be covering DNC twenty through twenty two, which I think is really kind of funny because D- section twenty is is long. It's the it's the constitution of the church, and so we're going to try to. We're going to try to kind of narrow that down a little bit. We'll see how we can possibly do that and then get into some shorter chapters with 21 and 22 and see how that lands. But until next time, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for listening.